And welcome to a special sub-series of the East Screen, West Screen podcast called Hollywood on Hong Kong. In this short series, we're going to be looking at select Western film portrayals in and about the Fragrant Harbor. Joining me on this journey of cinematic discovery is the podfather of Asian cinema, co-founder of the podcast on Fire Network, Mr. Kenny B. Hello, folks. And uh, it's, um, it is exploration of cinema for me because um, all of the selections up till now have been... Uh, new ones some of them i've been aware of this one i wasn't aware of at all and uh, it might have have to do with the uh, the country it was produced in but uh, i'll get to that but hey folks well, how are you doing sir it's been a couple uh, months since we talked sure sure i'm and uh, i've been avoiding you paul no i haven't uh <laughs> we, we we had a couple of shows in the pipeline so we've been uh, available online to the people but i'm, I'm doing good and uh, looking forward to uh sharing my thoughts on something that was uh, completely new i had zero context because uh, uh i'll i'll ask uh, I'll, I'll ask it is because i'm curious but uh, i don't follow the cinema of um, choice and uh there's uh, that's my fault, but uh, but uh, it's, it was a fun exploration, that's for sure, with a Hong Kong tint. Yes, indeed, and uh, we'll get into a little bit more about sort of the the background of our you know own experiences with uh, this particular country's cinema in general. But uh, to give you background on what we're doing here, so in developing the programming for this series, uh, we've looked at a range of films and broken them down into a few subcategories. Um, so with this, the fourth episode of the series, we launch into a new sub-series. Um, with the first three episodes, we focused on Colonial Hong Kong, and now we move on to some lighter fare, um, but also perhaps some less than politically correct material. So uh, this next film cast Hong Kong as the exotic backdrop for humor and hijinks, and so this launches us into this category that I've labeled as Hong Kong hijinks for the next couple episodes. And um, perhaps this comes at the expense of Hong Kong itself. The, the era is the 1960s, and this is a decade that was particularly enamored with uh, the Fragrant Harbor, with films like The World of Susie Wong, uh, the James Bond film You Only Live Twice, which primarily was about, you know, operations in Japan, but that starts out uh, with James Bond in Hong Kong. Um, they both use the locale to various degrees, and... You know, it was certainly something that brought to mind the nature of the exotic Orient or exotic Asia for the era. So these are some of the things we're going to be talking about in regard to today's film. So yes, to start us off with this subsection that I said I like to call Hong Kong hijinks, we turn slightly away from Hollywood and we head over to France for the 1965 production. And I'm going to butcher this name and perhaps Kenneth... Um, being a European, you may no, have... No, I took, I, I took German in school, so don't, Did you? Don't, okay. uh, don't, don't lean on me. That, that'll come <laughs> in a little bit handy towards the end today. Um, the, it is La Tribulation d'un Chinois en Chine, if I'm... I don't know. I, I, it's, it's the closest I can do, because uh, I took uh, a, a year of French 
decades ago, and it has long since left me. Um, but yes, this is the, the the name of the film in English. It is now called Up to His Ears. And this is based off the 1879 novel, uh, Tribulations of a Chinaman in China. Um, and that is the English translation by Jules Verne. Things such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and uh, Around the World in 80 Days. This was something that I'd kind of always known about in terms of the literature. Um, and I've read through bits of it at the time, but I've never read through it completely. But I do know uh, a bit more about the background of the story, and we'll we'll come back and talk about a little bit about that later. The story here for the film, though, uh, follows around a young and wealthy heir named Arthur Lempire, and he's completely bored with his life, so much so that he decides to commit suicide. But after multiple attempts fail due to his own half-hearted measures, he ends up losing his fortune uh, in a market crash, so his best friend and advisor, Mr. Go, suggests an alternative. They take out an insurance policy for $2 million to be split between Arthur's fiance named Alice, and Mr. Go himself, Arthur's friend. Mr. Go then promises to have Arthur killed within the 30-day period before the insurance policy expires, um, with the premise that he won't see it coming, and it'll be quick and painless. But when a chance meeting between Arthur and an exotic dancer named Alexandrine gives him a new passion for living, he must try to track down Mr. Go to cancel the plan, all while avoiding the nefarious machinations of a gang boss named Falinster. So a little bit convoluted in terms of the plot there, but you get the basic idea. This is a story plot that's been used in other movies over the years, you know, basically a character decides they, you know, are fed up with life and they hire somebody to kill them and then something spurs them to appreciate life once again and they have to go to great lengths to get the contract canceled or stopped. You you think to yourself, I should be able to name at least half a dozen movies with that premise because it it, it is very familiar. And my stupid crappy mind only went to well, this feels like the game. Mm. David Finch just the game. Yeah. Like at like one percent uh, to one percent recognition kind of thing. Like oh, he's entering a game where he doesn't know what's gonna what's gonna happen. So, but uh, I'm I'm sure there's tons of examples in the West and East and whatever where you where you go aha. Of course, that movie. Yeah, and I'm you sure know. it's been also a plot device and probably episodes of serialized TV as well over the years. Mm-hmm. Um. So this film is coming from a director I'm not too familiar with, uh, Philippe de Broca. De Broca, excuse me. Uh, the cast includes John Paul Belmondo as the main character Arthur, uh, Ursula Andress as Alexandrine, his love interest. Um, I think she'll be probably most familiar with Western audiences, having starred in the first James Bond film, Doctor No, um, a handful of other titles, of course, and the one that I think. Geeks of my generation will remember, of course, she played Aphrodite in Clash of the Titans. The old one, not the new one. <laughs> that was oh, terrible. Uh, look at him being super defensive. Like, the old <laughs> one. I said the old one, damn it. A <laughs> um, uh, very interesting uh, turn in this, too, by uh, an actor, if I'm going to say his name correctly. I believe he's of uh, Russian descent, Valery Ikijinov. Ikijinov, excuse me, for any Russian or... Uh, European listeners out there, uh, he plays Mr. Go, uh, and he's probably perhaps one of the most fun and interesting characters uh, of the film for me. And the gangster character of Falinster, played uh, by Joe Said. 
and we'll make some notes and some discuss some of the other characters uh, going forward as well. But let's start off a little bit, Kenneth. You mentioned that you don't have a lot of experience with French cinema. This is unfortunately the same case for me. If it's not a, a Jean-Luc Besson international blockbuster or you know something slightly sci-fi related, I probably haven't seen it. I'm not big on French art house cinema or French avant-garde. Nothing against it. It's just, you know, there are only so many hours in the day and there's so much media to be consumed. And it's just not an area that's ever been a big draw for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have seen this film once before, and it was about a year and a half ago when I initially was coming up with the idea for programming this series. And I was looking at, you know, films that had dealt with Hong Kong in a significant way. And I was like, oh, they made a movie of this, and I've never seen it. And I sat down and watched, and I thought it would be a good fit um, based on some of the things we're talking about. Was it like an easily Googleable title where you just type in uh, Hong Kong movie set in Hong Kong? Yes, they they actually have a... It's part of the discussion. They have a Wikipedia list of that. Um, The the difficult part is, is that some movies set in Hong Kong, you know, like You Only Live Twice, will Mm. just be set there for a single five-minute scene. Um, And so then it becomes, as I would work through the list, it became a process of, if I'd not seen it, tracking it down to try and watch it, seeing if it was significant enough to be, you know, included in this first round of films or or not, and and sort of, you know, uh, breaking them down. Others would be films like, that would, you know, have Hong Kong in the title, but were never actually filmed in Hong Kong. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so issues on a, like that, on which a is stage in Vancouver, which is kind of relevant for uh, the current week because we've got a film out right now that kind of falls into that category a little bit with the film by The Rock called Skyscraper. Uh, <laughs> by the, the Rock, no, you know, <laughs> we, we've rock, gone yeah. so far. Like he, he's he might as well have done it because he's he's all everywhere and he's. Uh, uh, but uh, do you go out and see that? By the way, as a like, oh, I want to see the Hong Kong connections oh, yes, and the absolutely. Hong Kong cast and things and the uh, green screened in Hong Kong setting. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah, I'm not overly familiar with the director or a lot of the films coming out uh, from France in this period or uh, you know in earlier decades. I would say so, Kenneth. Your experience here. Yeah, it's um, much the same, really. I mean, I'm I'm not of the generation that obviously discovered these uh, either, you know, on on video or through TV screenings. And uh, and as I grew older, I, I I realized what I was interested in from France and what I wasn't interested in. And that's again the, the more avant-garde and art house cinema is simply not for me. But I think when I started to realize that, oh, friend that's a French movie. Oh, that's a rather cool French movie. It was probably around the, in in the 90s when, when Luc Besson hit, of course, with um, La Femme Nikita and uh, when he started to produce his own movies abroad, uh, I was still aware of him, but, but also sort of the visual masterpieces of the 90s. That they, they stood out because you, you've never seen design like that in, you know, City of the Lost Children. I, I don't know if the following movie was called this around the world, but there's a movie called Delicatessen. Mm, yeah. And, uh, but, but also I fondly remember, it's just one movie out of one million movies, but I fondly remo- remember the movie Doberman, which um, with Vincent Castle, Monica Bellucci, Cecchi Cario, 
very fun action piece where essentially you know the roles are reversed like the cops versus robbers but uh, these cops are some of the worst heinous human beings ever and it's a fun sort of visual ride as well so um but but, but also I, I watched a fair amount out of the french horror explosion that happened um, maybe 10 years ago now when, when the likes of high tension came out um yeah, martyrs uh, frontiers and what have you but uh, still it's not something i actively follow them being horror movies those landed in your lap anyway if you were interested in horror and uh, f- you know the likes of high tension which is a big old fun splatterfest uh, from that director uh, alexandra aya um, or however his last name is pronounced and he went on to do the hills of ice remake and uh, piranha 3d so obviously another french director going to hollywood so so it, it, it's it's they said that I don't, I don't explore i take it in spontaneously as it comes along sort of thing but uh yeah the horror boom is probably my most active era because french horror was uh, oh of course inside is probably one of my uh, favorite french sort of new wave horror films because they were they weren't playing around they uh, seemingly could do anything they wanted and went for it violence-wise, and that was pretty damn fun. And uh, then the American remakes happened of like Martyrs and Inside, and I doubt they were as um, controversial and as uh, hardcore with the violence as the French movies were, because uh, they they were they were pushing taboo taboo aspects uh, a little bit. Uh, but uh, that's a story for another podcast. I'm not gonna gross you out because it's a comedy we're gonna talk about. So. Yes, indeed. And I think that's part of the issue, too, that uh, with French cinema, I remember early on, this was well before I got into Hong Kong cinema, um, I had started to branch out into non-Hollywood cinema. And I got pulled over to French cinema because of an actress named Emmanuel Burt, who mm-hmm. I had seen her in something in the States, and I was like, I want to see more about her. And then I ended up um, watching this two-part movie film thing that I had to go to an actual art house cinema to watch because it wasn't playing in the in the regular cinemas. So it was kind of my first experience with the whole sort of art house movie scene. And it was um, it was uh, this series, the, the first film was called Jean de Florette with um, uh, Yves Montand and Daniel Attil. And um, then who's the other big French actor? Um, Gerard Depardieu. Yeah, Gerard, Gerard Depardieu. Out of the blue, I <laughs> only name, I, only name that came to me. So. Yeah, so um, the the first one he's in it, and uh, then the second one, Manon is called Manon of the Spring, and she was in that. So I had to go watch the first one first to get to the second one, just because I wanted to see her. And mm. it's it it's just a very straightforward, artistic but yet dramatic and punishing. French film <laughs> for anybody who's seen punishing French dramas before. And after that, I was like, I can't take anymore, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, for me, it was the same until things like Nikita or the fifth element or the, you know, um, the, those more accessible for me, uh, genre films would start to f- land on my radar. You, you uh, can sort of half argue that, uh, the, the many, in European productions that Luc Besson did, but were English language, you know, the transporter movies, even Danny the Dog with Jet Li. I mean, I mean, they're, they're very, they're, they're not rooted in f- 
like they're, they're not super French, but they were European productions, and they they were you know I I always enjoyed, for instance, Luc Besson's take on. Uh, on his role as a producer right because he um you know if anything many of those movies are really really fun uh these like very um approachable uh, 90 minute action pieces you know there's a movie called from paris with love i think with john travolta tons of fun but again they're they're they're, they're more approaching international movies rather than pure french but uh he, still his role as a as a european producer is um is something i've enjoyed yeah, I, I think he was involved with in some way with um, the movie Wasabi. Um, if I'm yeah, I think yeah, he was because, the uh, producer and writer, and writer on that, which is a great fun fun film um, for anybody who's a fan of John Reno and who's interested in Japan. Um, just it's it's a clash of cultures that I found uh, to be really really funny and very big you know big on action as Luc Besson is known to to delve into even as a producer Mm -hmm. so yeah we seems like we have a very similar kind of uh, history with french cinema and so for those of you who are out there listening if you are you know experts in in french cinema and there you pick up on some things that we have not mentioned or are not aware of please do feel free to comment or to write in and, and let us know and we'll come back and and discuss those points in some errata sessions uh a bit later all right. Uh, let us talk about this film, though, uh, up to his ears. And I'm going to pass the ball back over to Kenneth. This was a first watch for you. Yes, and sir. so, you know, what were your thoughts as somebody who's a fan of Hong Kong cinema, but maybe not so much as French cinema? And you've got this kind of convergence here. It is uh, a side. It, it's good, but uh, bad points. It's a bit too long to sustain its uh, chase and farce scenario but largely it uh, has good momentum as this big sort of 110 minute chase uh, across various geographical locations main one being hong kong and uh, i only thought to myself well i i by the album mark i think you should think about wrapping things up and not go on for 50 more minutes and then they do jokes like people appearing in drag and uh, sure that brought down the house originally but i i had a sense that um they maybe they should have uh, tightened this a little bit more and uh, they would have would have had a uh they would have gone from a good to even great easily approachable light time with uh, uh with uh this uh character and uh, his uh growing love interest over the film so um but but ne- never true did Paul. It was just that I thought uh, they, they were running a little bit on fumes by the last 30-40 minutes. Uh, and, and the first uh, part of the movie uh, uh, goes along and uh, uh, it's got a good pace to it. And uh, it's uh, it's good fun. Laugh out loud funny? Not really. But I think it's amusing, uh, co- like constantly amusing. It's actually not a bad thing because it gets away with that and and then some and uh, and sixties uh, um, era Hong Kong is uh, pretty to look at. Uh, I didn't spot any obvious, but I'm completely stupid. But I didn't spot any obvious. Oh my God, what a stereotypical thing to do just because you're in Hong Kong. But I'm sure you might have spotted more things akin to that than I did, having been in Hong Kong and knowing a little bit more about um, areas and uh, eras. But uh, yeah, still good fun. Yeah, the I, I think the only thing that for me kind of stood out as a as a little bit of a stereotyping or uh, not really typecasting, but but you know just a moment that looks like 
it's a little bit grating today is the opening credits where they've got the font in sort of that kind of an Asiatic font character, even though the letters are coming up in, in French. And you've got uh, the music behind it as a sort of oriental music that's very indicative of what you would think if somebody was, you know, doing oriental music in an in a older film. And then lots of shots of just porcelain. <laughs> porcelain statues, yeah. porcelain figures, nothing really to do with the movie. Um, nothing. No, you because know, he's not an antique enthusiast. No, so. it's it's not not shots of you know Hong Kong in porcelain or other parts of Asian porcelain. It's just little porcelain figures to show Asianness. <laughs> so that part, <laughs> that that whole sequence, kind of was just like okay, you know, um, maybe not a as pill inspired battle or, movie. A or, pill battle. <laughs> or interesting, uh, especially by today's standards. But okay, I think once they kind of moved into it um, and the things got rolling. Not, you know, nothing overly politically incorrect per se, um, because, again, one of the things that's great about this film is that there's so much location shooting mm-hmm. on the ground in Hong Kong. I mean, this movie must have had a massive budget for the day because not just Hong Kong. They go to do location shooting in Malaysia, in India, in uh, Tibet at one point, and in some, sometimes it's only for a couple scenes, and, again, most of this is being done on the ground in Hong Kong. And when I say on the ground in Hong Kong, a lot of it is outside in Hong Kong, where typically with a Hollywood film or something like we saw with, say, the Taipan TV series, yeah, they had some second location shooting outside, but a lot of it was inside. A lot of it was interior sets. So, you know, they didn't have the expense of the actors always being over there outside. This kind of felt like the reverse of that. It was like, yeah, they had some sets, but a lot of it was the actors outside just kind of, you know, doing their crazy things uh, on no, the streets uh, or no in the harbor. No projection cheating, <laughs> as far as I could see, like nothing. It was not like, we're at the Taj Mahal now. <laughs> you know, it was it was not that silly scene in Wayne's World with uh, like blue screen changing up between it. Like it felt very genuinely physical throughout the movie, including the Hong Kong sections, where which keeps to the street mostly and it looks like it's shot in in the middle of um, summer so them running around and doing so much physical stuff must have been a a b yeah yeah was was definitely probably very hot and humid um and so you do get some very interesting external shots i mean as i was you know re-watching this to do the recording earlier this week uh, my wife kept walking into the room and she'd go is that That's the HSBC building? You know, That's it's not just there like anymore. this. It, it almost was like an alien landscape to her because hmm. things have changed, you know, so very much. Um, so, for somebody who is really into looking at, um, you know, Hong Kong scene spotting, this is a this is sort of a great film to look at because it's really got some some old footage and and a lot of it uh, in, in the region. There are a couple specific places that that we'll get to and mention as well. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about kind of the glue that is being used to hold this film together, and that is really our two leads, um, Mm -hmm. played by uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Ursula Andress. Now, Jean-Paul Belmondo had gained... I mean, he's been acting for a long time. He's a well-known actor. He's known really for a film that came out a year before, I think, called That Man from Rio, 
which I've not seen, but it's apparently a kind of like a spoof on the James Bond genre. And I think there's a sequel to that film as well, uh, which he did. Uh, and he worked on that film with the same director, uh, Philip DeBroca. So they had a history of working together when they um, came on to do this film together. And I think, again, not having seen that film, but it, but it felt like, you know, the director and how he was using the actor, there was a comfort level there uh, at the very least. Um, as well with Ursula Andress, the love interest. Now, interestingly, for a little bit of sort of uh, side gossip, those two actually hooked up in the years that followed, apparently, um, and were a couple for uh, about six or seven years, I think. And in this same year that the film was released, Belmondo had separated from his wife at the time. So a little bit of crossover. I don't know. You know, speculative. Did they, you know, what was it? Was the the hookup a result of the separation or was the separation a result of the hookup? Um, You know, that that's left for the gossip magazine. Because this matters for the drama (laughs) I turned. But it does kind of, you know, one of the things I was thinking as I was seeing uh, Ursula Andress on screen with with Belmondo is they looked really natural together, mm-hmm. so there was a there was at least some affinity during the filmmaking that apparently you know kept going um, to some extent. So that worked really well, I think. Um, do you have experience with uh, Miss Andress or Mr. Belmondo in other work or uh, him? No, uh, the name you you think you know the name? Yeah, yeah, that guy. I think he's famous. Uh, but uh, but but her of course uh, Doctor No and uh, a German or French movie or two since then. But mainly Doctor No, and obviously you'd had at least um, two James Bond movies by then, and she was iconic from the from the get go. So I don't think the world had forgotten about the sort of visual impact she made in that movie. You know, coming out of the sea in a bikini, and obviously they get her into a bikini in this movie as well in, in a suspiciously like similar looking island to mm. uh, the one where Sean Connery sees um, sees her character for the first time. But uh, I, I, I thought that this was gonna be a James Bond style comedic adventure because I'd probably caught that minor plot summary in connection to The Man from Rio. But it certainly seemed he looks like it initially because he's got a white suit on or a tuxedo on and uh, he sort of looks dashing there in profile and then then they start to craft this almost droll sense of humor because he looks incredibly indifferent about uh, sabotaging his own brakes uh, uh, on his luxury car as it goes down those uh, those uh, twisty turn hills so it's not uh, this sort of clownish undercranked comedic farce it almost uh, plays out with a nod towards black comedy to, an, to a degree, and then the dialogue starts to happen. Well, it's the ninth time this week he's tried this. And I think that that setup got to me because um, he wasn't, uh, you know, um, intensely and like you're uh, in, in a constant state of, I want to kill myself, I want to kill myself, but rather, okay, here we go again. I'll try this then. And then and then obviously as the car crashes, at some point he'd thrown himself out of the car, so he probably had regrets at that point because he was hanging there from the hillside and his uh, his entourage, his family and his pending fiance, they sort of like they didn't care that much that he was hanging from the hillside because it's the ninth time this week something similar to this had happened. Maybe this is the milder attempt of the week. And that setup because setup is important. That setup was rather funny because um 
I'm not that into when it's all like just line up characters and have them banter back and forth to each other. That that can be a hard sell to me. But they they um they use a, a somewhat of a non-verbal approach and a visual approach to get us into comedy. And I think that that's a quite a smart choice. Brave, maybe not. Maybe a lot of French movies were like this. But it certainly got to me that uh, his uh, he sort of he's 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 almost slumped down mentally. I don't care. No, I don't care. And uh, he, when they arrive in Hong Kong, I'm not sure they ever capitalized on the fact that, well, we're on water. Let's make sure he doesn't jump into the water or anything. You know, maybe he's he's not that depressed where he's constantly constantly tries to jump into the water, like into shark-infested water or anything. But that that would have been funny too. But uh, I I think the setup and him him being a comedic performer, yes, Belmondo, but not clownish. I, I don't think I could have dealt with necessarily, you know clownish uh, i don't have any any comparison but i like the tone he brought and and certainly that therefore the the director brought the same sort of uh, tone you know he's an interesting fellow because as i was reading on his backstory apparently he started out his early career as an amateur boxer for a while right and on. was uh, undefeated so he's got you know a nice physique um that he carries over into this role and we do get some shots of him without a shirt on and uh you know he looks thrilled but it's funny because when he's in this dour, kind of depressed emo mode, he's got this hairstyle where, like, a whole <laughs> lock of his hair just hangs down really long in front of his face, you know, almost <laughs> making him look more like a, a an emotional teenager in some ways. And then at a certain point, you know, he, he ends up meeting uh, Alexandrine, and she comments on it, and he immediately just goes and gets some scissors and cuts it off. But then it's like <laughs> it comes back instantly at a later point in the film. It's really funny, uh, just as kind of a sight gag. And, yeah, he's he, he, he plays a range of humor here because um, not it's not all Keystone Cops kind of humor, but there is one sequence of that where he's, like, running through Hong Kong, and he gets, like, picked up by a crane at some point, and it's a little bit overcranked. Um, or I should say undercranked to give it that, uh, that little bit of a sped up look, you know, to, to enhance the humor. He gets dropped into a smokestack at one point. And... But you know, the difference there is, and I'm not going to elaborate on it now because I, I think I know you have notes. The difference there is they, that that's a sign of the movie putting actors through some challenging physical stuff. This right. is not just like throwing pies in faces or like slipping on a banana peel or like oil spills on the street. Like they put the actors and obviously some stuntmen through through the ringer on this one. Oh, and that, yes. that, that that makes it a lot more interesting, especially for us as Hong Kong film fans for uh, being so used to um, you know, comedy or action or otherwise movies being a physical showcase in Hong Kong. And uh, that's what we actually get here in this sixties uh, in this sixties Hong Kong set movie. There's a there's an amazing shot where and I, I guess, you know, it's a different era. So during this era, you could get actors to do pretty much anything, um, or or at least French actors, I, I don't know. But there's an amazing shot where him and his butler are camped out. They're, they're sleeping in a hammock that is attached to the side of a cliff. <laughs> and the it starts as a close-up, and, you know, you see the two of them, and then it's a long pullback. And you see, they it's really them. It's not stunt people, because it's one take. They're up there. I'm sure they're secured somehow, but they're on the side of this really huge cliff in a hammock, <laughs> and they're just hanging there. 
And it's just for that shot. And there are other things that are like that. You where the actors are, I mean, even Ursula Andrus gets into it. They have a a sequence where they're chasing a little Cessna plane uh, along a runway, and they're running up to the plane with the props, with the prop going sort of full full on. You know, that's not you know that that's something you'd see Tom Cruise do today, but it would be done in you know. With him in, in a green screen and a post-production set and CG effects thrown in afterwards to make it all look realistic. Nope, this was just, hey, Ursula, run after this plane. Chase it. It's going to be going full bore down the runway. You just chase it. <laughs> We're going to film this, you doing it. This is art. We're French. Um, so, Action yeah, art. there's a lot of stuff like that. Uh, um, he, uh, Belmondo jumps into Victoria Harbor, or Aberdeen, it's more, more specifically Aberdeen at one point. Which is not something you would get any actor to do today <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, of just all the gunk and, and, you know, people get sick from doing that. You get skin diseases and all kinds of nasty stuff. Jesus but nope, Christ. he just, he's there on the boat one minute and next minute psh, he's in the water and it's like, <laughs> and I'm like wow, uh, different times to be sure. So uh, that was and something. That, that makes it sort of, it made it fresh though for me because I, I don't, maybe I expected familiar comedic beats and familiar comedic gags like like, like i wasn't literally expecting pie in the face for 90 minutes but it it took me by surprise that it was such a physical comedic showcase to the extent that there was stunts involved i mean yes one can jump into the water jump between boats they're standing still but they're all they, they keep elevating it they keep sort of raising the bar here and at one point i think I don't know why I latched onto this shot, but I, I think it's Belmondo, and he, it's in the latter half of the film. He jumps through a display of firecrackers, and a millisecond yes. after he's dived through it, a millisecond afterwards, it, those firecrackers are set off, those typical uh, firecrackers that you see in movies when they open up new businesses and so forth, and maybe New Year firecrackers as well. And those things always go up, go off, you know, not one at a time, but like... 50 of them. And if you time that wrongly, I mean, maybe you'll get a little bit scorched, but you don't want that surrounding you, right? Yeah. Uh, all of that going on uh, around your head or around your body or whatever. So the, all of that sort of kept me afloat rather than, uh, you know, uh, chase scenarios where it's only on foot. When they combine it with some physical stuff, that makes it all the more impressive. And uh, I think my favorite gag that made me laugh, it's, it's not a stunt dog, but when one of the initial chase sequences, he, he's jumped between boats, I think, uh, Belmondo, and he's on one boat that he, I think he's trying to make it stop yeah, by he's just tearing the, the, engine tearing apart. the engine apart, like opening that little box with the engine parts and just throwing them over his shoulders to, and hoping that the boat stops at some point by ripping off the, all of those parts. And I thought that was all good fun because uh, it didn't play according to a template that I knew from watching millions of movies uh, from elsewhere. And, and, and it made me, uh, he, it made me uh, sort of appreciate his performance style too. The, the thing that stood out for me for that scene and also the earlier scene where he initially meet him and he's trying to basically kill himself by driving, cutting the brakes and having his car go off a cliff was just how, I mean, in thinking about how films are made from a technical standpoint, it's like, okay, you're going to be on this boat and you're going to be ripping these pieces out of this box that are parts of the engine and you're just throwing them. And most of the pieces, he throws them out of frame. And I'm wondering, is there, are there like, is there a boat right next to him? Are there people catching those pieces? But <laughs> some of the pieces are actually going into the water and I'm thinking, 
Did they just litter? <laughs> Did they, I'm, I'm sure they're not having divers go after that junk, right? And then the same with the car. The car goes off a cliff at some point. There's a big explosion. You know, you've seen those kind of sequences done thousands of times. But then I'm thinking, did they go and clean up the car? Because it kind of just rolled off into the sea. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> how, how do, what do they have to do? What's the requirement when you do a big scene like that? For post-production, especially back then, did they just like, nah, nobody's looking, we're going to do it, and we're going to just bail and leave it there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Or did they did they have it already confirmed that there's a cleanup crew and, and all that stuff? So the, the physicality and the practicality of the stunts, you know, from this era, especially because they're really going for bigger and bigger stunts, right? It, mm-hmm. it makes you wonder in terms of, you know, just how did they go about doing it? You know, what was what was involved? Whereas today... You look at a, you know, a big Transformers thing and you see thousands of cars crashing and going off into the ocean and you go, that's just so much, you know, ones and zeros uh, yep. <clears throat> that's being generated on a computer somewhere. So there's not a lot of, I mean, there's a little bit of mystery if you're interested in, you know, doing animation and, and, and CG graphics and particle effects and that kind of stuff. But the practical mystery of making movies like they used to like this. Um, Mm -hmm. That's something that just makes me go, wow. When I see things like that. Hey, I I have a question though, because I'm I'm still, I'm I'm never going to be familiar with the areas of Hong Kong. So the Harbor with all those, uh, well, well, first of all, are, are presumably all those boats fishing boats? Is that is it, is it a fishing harbor where, where boats depart and then come back? It's a mixture. There, they'll um, and when you see that initial scene where his boat, um, the Mimi, which interestingly enough is registered out of Cannes, is sailing into the harbor and it's like just massive amount of boats all around it. Some of those are fishing boats. A lot of those are boats that people just live on. And a lot of that is still around today. During certain times of the year, you can be in Aberdeen and it'll be packed with fishing boats. Uh, it because... looks packed. And I'm thinking like, is all that organized? Can you even get out like smoothly when all of those they, boats are at, at the harbor? They have a system. Um, I wouldn't know, begin to know how the system works, but they do have a system. And it's, you know, a lot of it is fishing families, families that have had a boat for generations and during certain times of the year when it's fishing season, those boats will be gone. And some of the houseboats that people would live on will be empty. During typhoon season or when typhoons are coming, it'll be mm. packed because they're all trying to get into the more safe areas. Um, they'll be secured up with, you know, next to each other and, and all tied together. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a mixture. And, and you see sequences like that in a lot of films. You've seen that in... Um, Enter the Dragon, um, the which was the Aces Go Places. The, was it the second one with Peter Graves? Um, the third one, right? In the international version, there's a sequence with Peter Graves going through a boat in in a, in the similar area. So you you see that used quite frequently mm-hmm. um, in a lot of films. And even most recently, I was very critical of the 2018 film Tomb Raider because there's a very similar sequence that they, they're doing here in the 1960s, you know, sort of a, a, a chase across boats um, as kind of the obstacles to be overcome. And, and they do the same kind of thing. And it's it was just surprising to see them use Hong Kong in that way that was being used in films, you know, dating back to this period and earlier. 
It's a, it certainly adds production value, but uh, it, it always has to do with how you execute. And here it's uh, almost like, uh, you know, maybe they were granted a permit, but they certainly didn't cho- choreograph all those boats being there. They just made sure they could get their boat in yeah, right so yeah. so and and i, I kind of like that it's also a physical show showcase for a movie but all considering it runs 110 minutes and there's a lot of chases around a few different geographical settings for, for me it felt a, i felt a little bit numb to it after a while it it you know ended well enough and i didn't dislike it but there was a lot here, Paul. A lot of chases and a lot of scenarios they crammed into one. For for me, to me, it felt like maybe you could have saved some of that and trimmed it down to a lean ninety minutes of fun. Yeah, or I what think did you think? It's it's definitely. I mean, some writings on it have compared it to Verne's other work around the world in eighty days. Right. Um, so there's this sense that it's trying to go for that bigger feel by you know bouncing to a couple other places rather than just keeping it you know, central to Hong Kong. And again, not overly familiar with the the, the literature version in terms of everywhere it goes, but it, it travels a little bit too. So there's a lot of comparability um, between that, that idea of, you know, being, having the flexibility to, to move around, you know, hmm. if you were part of the middle or upper class of society during this time, right? Um, but yeah, I do, it. you know, it's... It's. I felt it was a little bit long. You know, it could have been. If it would have been a nice, smooth ninety minutes, it could have been. You know, tightened up a bit. There's, there's, there's a bit of fat in places that I think um, could have easily been trimmed. Um, but at the same time, I did appreciate the the scope that they were going for because not a lot mm-hmm. of films do that anymore. Um, they don't go for these just because of the expense. You know, or if they do try it, like you said, they try it through green screen. And you know, try to try to cheat their way through it. So I was appreciative that this film was putting actors on the ground in places. It's hard to be impressed anymore with uh, movies being set in different parts of the world because we've seen it. So it's so hard to you know surprise you with settings. And uh, uh, maybe that that's just me. You know, having a an, an affection for older cinema in that regard, like I'm, I, I am sort of impressed when I watch a variety of James Bond movies where they do go different places, wherever Asia or not, and uh, we get these uh, these different uh, action scenarios or, or drama scenarios at international locations. So maybe it's just that, but uh, I'm, it's just I'm, I'm not particularly impressed. But I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, look at that. That is production value. I think they're there at that sort of... Uh, well, they're in India now, I think. And they're in Tibet and they're running around being silly in Tibet. And I kind of uh, dig it. That there's a good momentum. And I, especially in Tibet there when they're, they're almost uh, shamelessly elongated scenario of trying to... Uh, uh, climb onto the the anchor from the from the balloon above, and they run through different narrow alleys of that. Uh, uh, I think they're in Tibet or India, but whatever. They they elongate that sequence so much, and I kind of dug that that they they just can't get that damn anchor, and they're chased, and they have to, to keep on going, keep on going, and then finally, you know, the sequence concludes, and uh, they 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 struck a balance there between them. Um, you know, extending it within the sequence, but not for 20 minutes in total or anything. And uh, and and the setting made it fresh too. So uh, because uh, I don't know, 
definitely 110 minutes of just Hong Kong, I think, would have been uh, the killer for the movies. I'm glad there, there's a little break in between, and then then we're back to the main location eventually, and um, and uh, you know more of the romance with Ursula Andress. Uh, uh, her role, I mean, it's she. Maybe I'm being unfair, but she's caused for a reason. I think she's uh, she's known as a sex symbol, and uh, but but at least they give her character some quirks and uh, you know she's just not a stripper but uh, she researches men because she's gonna write a bestseller one day and she's sort of blasé about the fact that uh, when they re-meet later in the movie when he uh, bursts into her dressing room again and she sort of goes she doesn't say this but she sort of goes hey sup still chased <laughs> well that's your problem, isn't it? And then, but then obviously she's along for the ride. But I thought, uh, you know, as you said, they look good together. So there's a momentum there without this role being, you know, a big win for um, for women in film or anything. And uh, yes, she gets into a bikini when they reach the island and all of that. But it was never cheap uh, sex- sexualization of, of Ursula. But um, th- th- there is a purpose here for casting her too. You know, I think audiences would have you know, whistled in the theater at some of the sites here, you know. Yeah, yeah she but, in, uh, interestingly has to perform a thing called the unstriptease, which I thought was, uh, I maybe is a real thing, but I thought it was pretty clever because I'd not seen that before. So um, it's basically, you know, she starts out stripped and, you know, goes through the dance and instead of removing clothing, she adds clothing to where she's yeah. fully clothed by the end. Um, and part of me wonders too if if putting her in that sort of researcher role, not entirely, you know, not entirely with sort of a feminist perspective, but the idea of researching men and the issues of men and the problems of men, um, what was interesting is a kind of a sort of a political idea of the time, maybe, because one of the things that the novel was known for is being critical of the era. It was again. Um, the 1860s, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was very critical of things like the opium trade and other things that were happening in the region. So we don't get a lot of that here. Um, But instead you get the interjection of her character, which is not a character that exists in in the novel. In the novel, um, the insurance contract is set up by the main character and his friend and his fiance, uh, which in the film here is Alice. Um, and she has a you know small role, but uh, so the invention of the Ursula Andress character of Alexandrine here makes me wonder if, in part, she's there to provide some of the social commentary, not necessarily on things from the you know era of uh, Jules Verne, but actually things from the era of France, you know, attitudes mm-hmm. and conventions and things. But again, I'm not French, and I could be way off the mark here. It's just a some assumptions that I'm making. Well, 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 it certainly is there that like that char- those character beats they they've written for her. So she's not, you know, uh, a damsel in distress and being pulled pulled by Belmondo all throughout the movie, avoiding dan- dangers and all of that. So, um, you know, there's that mixture which uh, doesn't hurt the movie at all. Um, my favorite stunt, by the way, is a very clever one, including. Uh, the one with the uh, the shirts and the various clothing that are tied together 
as they fall yeah. off the bridge they hang on to those uh, clothes during a suitcase presumably but they are tied together so they they think they're falling but they're holding on to the clothes and they're they're there's just the right amount of clothes tied together by the butler in a genius move that uh, they uh, get all, almost all the way to the ground and uh, save their bacon that way and it's a clever stunt because I, I'm, I'm fairly sure this this was performed by stuntmen but they do it they do it man i mean maybe it's not just cloth tied together maybe there's some wires and harnesses but that stunt looks absolutely exceptional because the camera starts close and then they take us out and we realize that they they're not doing this in a close-up they actually are doing this from a bridge that's high up and the ground is way down there and that's the stunt that's the fall they're gonna do while uh, you know they, they have to calculate that stuff there's math behind that stuff Paul surely yeah it's like bungee jumping before that was a thing kind of mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and it's a great visual you know the, the way they, they frame it and everything it looks great visually um, and it's a, it's a it's a very fun stunt to be sure the, um, the, the there's one sequence that I do want to talk about which relates back to Hong Kong and Hong Kong geography. There's a point to where the main character, he's trying to track down his friend, Mr. Go, and they go to a place called uh, Thai Pak Floating Restaurant. So this is, uh, you know, we, we've, we've talked about the floating restaurants before. It was used in um, the Taipan series, and we're, we're going to come back and talk about it in some of the other films later in this series as well. It's very commonly a central location, for a lot of things, and I think we mentioned, of course, this is the this was kind of the bailing point for uh, for Kenneth in uh, the Gen Gen X cops movie or the Gen Y cops, the one with Edison. Um, I don't even and, know what uh, setting they were in. All I heard was yo 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 <laughs> dog 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 dog. Like come on, come So yeah, this is the this is the um at for for this period of time, the 1950s. Uh, you have Taipak Floating Restaurant which is today no longer called that. Um, it was established in 1952. It was later in the 70s at some point bought by Stanley Ho, uh, Josie Ho's dad. And he combined it with the Jumbo Floating Restaurant to become this one entity known, I think it's uh, Jumbo Kingdom. Um, so the two became one um, kind of thing. It's So it's still there in, in some way, shape, or form today. Uh, and you can visit it, but it's not no longer called uh, Taipak Floating Restaurant. Mm. But the interesting thing here is he follows Mr. Go into Taipak Floating Restaurant, except it's not a restaurant on the inside. It is a massage parlor. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, if you go Exotic. if you go to uh, Jumbo Kingdom expecting a massage, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed. But um, for, for me, that was one of the things that kind of made me chuckle and, and stand out because... Uh, and and it, it's not it's not a a uh, how would you say uh, a, a nasty massage parlor uh, a massage parlor with a happy ending kind of thing. It is just no, a, a regular it, you know people were going there to get normal kind of spa style massages that that kind sure. of thing. Um, so you know it's not it's not that they're casting a disparaging eye on on the idea of massage practice or anything. It was just interesting to see them going into a restaurant. Nobody's eating. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, Is that a luxury restaurant or can you go there as a sort of say normal normal person? I mean, it's a tourist restaurant. Um, right. On. So it's not, it, it falls between luxury in terms of the cost, um, but it's not, 
you know, you're going to pay more than standard for the meal. Right. And it, it's an experience more than anything else. The food right. is not really great. It's <laughs> not terrible. Um, it's certainly not by foodie standards. What is it? The Michelin rating. It's not a Michelin restaurant or anything. But it's known. It's it's something that people going to Hong Kong, it's like, oh, we got to go to the Jumbo Floating Restaurant. When my parents came, you know, it was a place I took them. When my friends came over, it was a place I took them just for the experience. Normally, I'd take them at lunch because the lunch meals were uh, a little bit cheaper than the dinner meals. So Right. This is the place that burned down in Noble House. Yes. But don't worry. Yes, indeed. It's fine. <laughs> and it, it, it actually did burn down. The, the Jumbo one uh, burned down in the 70s, I think, before Stanley Ho combined them. So they, they burned down tragic. Some people actually died in that fire. Right. Um, and then they rebuilt, and then eventually it, it got bought out and combined. So still there today. It's you know definitely something to see if you're a fan. If you get over to Hong Kong, you should put it on the agenda. Don't, you don't have to eat there. You can just take one of the boats over and walk around. They've got a little gift shop, you know, if you want to buy a hat or some postcards or something, um, you know, so you don't even actually have to eat there. But it's 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 something to do if you are so inclined. Yeah, yeah it's a, for, for movies and that series, it, it fit the, the sort of high society gathering that uh, that Noble House uh, mm-hmm. sort of, uh, that, that was their approach. So that, that was why I was unsure if uh, that was uh, the actual... Um, realistic tie-in that it's a uh, high society high fluting type of uh, places yeah i mean it's it's uh it's again you know it's hard to say I, i'm not part of high society maybe they have private gatherings there but i don't think so i think it's a bit too touristy it would be like right on. you know there are some section of of disney world which like only elites can get access to you know celebrities mm. and things people with connections but I mean, I think when we think of like fine dining, yeah, they have expensive restaurants in Disney World that you can pay an arm and a leg for. But most people don't really associate it with fine dining. Really, they still think of it as a very touristy thing. Yeah, it would be a waste to not use it as a to- as a tourist attraction because it's it's a you know it makes a visual impact in the case of uh, the restaurant at hand. So so yeah, that, that makes sense for sure. Yeah. Um, so we'll be, uh, again, coming re- and returning to talk about the floating restaurants in future episodes, um, to be sure. the uh, There's a, a establishing shot too early on of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, the old building, long before they built the sort of super sci- g- glass in the sky skyscraper structure that exists today. Uh, so again, it's great to see a film like this that is using um, a lot of physical locations that are pre-modern Hong Kong um, and you can get a you know just get a glimpse of what things used to look like Um, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about these older films and because there's so much of it it never comes off as the obligatory shot of that obligatory setting or building because they, they spend so much time in Hong Kong, you get like a good chunk of, uh, of uh, you know, time spent in a variety of areas. So it's not like 
there's a zoom in on one building and then as you said cut to an interior in france or anything so um you know it it's another case for this being a, a physical showcase that includes the way the way it was filmed uh, which is regardless if you know about the settings or not it's always nice to have this captured on film because it's um it's it's modern but still a, a lost era to a degree so it's quite cool so I guess one of the big points of criticism that we can levy at this film, though, is that there's no notable Asian cast um, within any of the, the lead roles. Uh, you have a lot of Hong Kongers serving as extras in the backgrounds. One Hong Konger actually does some you know, shouting at the main character in Cantonese at one point. I think it's the scene where you talked about where he jumps through the wall of firecrackers. And an old lady clocks him. Yeah, that, that's that's right. That's that that might be the scene I'm remembering. But no notable sort of recognizable uh, Hong Kong actors in this one, which is a shame. Uh, again, you do have this uh, actor who plays Mr. Go. Again, I'll butcher his name, Valerie uh, Inkinjanoff, who looks like he's of Asian descent, but from what I read, he's from uh, Russia, and so or one of one of the provinces in Russia. You know, he looks like because this is the the, the film is not sync sound uh, for the era. It's you know it sounds like post production with the actors doing their dub or mixed back on top of uh, the track. But it looks like he's speaking French throughout. So it looks most like... people do, and I'm I'm, I'm not sure Slander's new French. Uh, she very much uh, might have, but uh, it, it never looks uh, fakey fakey and like uh, or bad synchronized mm. uh, dialogue and thing. I can swear I heard a little bit of sync sound in one of the few interior locations, but mm. that was it. They're in a jail cell at one point, and it felt like at least recorded production audio at at the very least. Uh, you know, yeah. Mr. Go, I think he was perhaps the most interesting role for me he's again kind of playing that magical other role that you sometimes get in films where he's like the advisor the friend and he seems to have all the knowledge and the answers but i really liked him because you know initially they start off with him wearing sort of a traditional chinese mandarin style outfit but very quickly they just throw him into modern chic western clothing you know i really wanted to see much more of him um, on screen and throughout. The other, I guess, actor of note that we can mention is uh, Joe Said as the gangster Fallenster. And this was apparently his only film role from what I could uncover. He didn't seem mm. to have done anything else. He kind of at a certain point comes in and adds more impetus to the the basic long chase that this film is setting itself up as a, you know, a long extensive chase. The main the, the main issue that some people today might have in terms of political correctness, though, is because the Jules Verne novel, the main character is Chinese. His name is Kin Fo. And here you, you know, have a Frenchman coming into the role as Arthur. You know, obviously this is a French film, so they want a French leading man in the role. I mean, so this is, would this count as whitewashing today? Um, even though it's being done in the 60s, you know, who can say? That's, a, that's an argument. Do you, can you la label today's political ideas on films of old? A lot of people say yes. This is why you get films that were once beloved that are no longer held in that same light because political sensibilities have changed. So, mm -hmm. you know, this can be seen as a kind of a case of whitewashing since the literary character is, in fact, Chinese. 
and um but nonetheless i think it's still you know using the actor himself belmondo and his strengths as a physical comedian but also somebody who looks like a leading man uh that balance i think still works very well yeah the production is it is kind of shock filled with effort though so it's you know it i think it's easier to attach to criticism when when the movie is up for greater criticism right. if the movie would have been boring and unfunny as hell then you could have probably nailed it to a cross a little bit easier uh, that way but they it, it's the, the, i think that criticism gets more inflated when something that was more modern whether it's uh, a novel or a prior movie adaptation that's then made again and that cost someone that uh, isn't Asian and what have you, you know, uh, not to draw an easy comparison because it's such low hanging fruit. But uh, obviously, uh, one or two years ago, you had the whole ghost in the shell debate in on, on that note. And that that one is rightly argued a little bit more because you have modern adaptations of the same same thing and uh, now they're doing it in the west and uh, i don't know if you ever saw ghost in the shell of a live one but uh, for for me it was fine up until the the twist and the backstory of uh, of her character then mm. i was like oh oh no 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 they didn't but i won't go into that now for uh, for which spoiler is, reasons which is interesting because there was a netflix series that dropped earlier this year that we watched called Altered Carbon. It basically does the same thing, except um, as a series, it has the flexibility to actually give some Asian performers much more screen time. Right. Um, so while it wasn't it wasn't the terrible choice that I think they, they had with Ghost in the Shell, necessarily, in terms of what they did to try and narratively kajigger that. It, exactly. I think it, 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 it was not lobbed at her performance my, my criticism right now was more the way they wrote right. the twist which is not present in the anime yeah yeah it's uh and and that's hollywood that's what hollywood does and seems to continue to do because when you've got people in power with money and they do what they want right <laughs> and yep. then you get the end result yeah. uh and we choose to take it or leave it that's what we exactly do as exactly so uh, that was just uh my reaction when i watched that thing hey i watched it in the cinema and i had a good time watching takeshi kitano at, at any rate on on the big screen that was fun he was badass in that movie goes to the shell yes Rant he was it, I, the, the best thing about that movie and, and talk about pretty much spot on casting was him in that role mm -hmm. i guess in wrapping up some of the final thoughts um uh, let me throw it back over to you ken nothing else really then it uh, it keeps up the momentum you you'd think if you knew beforehand that it's going to be one long chase and you see the running time i didn't know I, essentially i didn't know of the plot at all it was zero percent context going in because i'm not blessed with that most of the time you always have some at the very least minor preconceived notion of what you're going to experience this one was zero and uh, so i went I did not knowing anything about the plot, but if you do know that, yes, it's a chase sequence, you see 110 minutes, know that for at least 90, it's all good. It's good, got good momentum, it's amusing, it's uh, it's good fun, it's clever, got some physical showcases that involves the actors and stuntmen, and uh, it's not uh, stuffy or anything like that. So it, 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 uh, it provides the good entertainment that it aimed to be this was not an art piece or anything um uh, granted i didn't ask you this uh 
but seemingly this must have done some business back in the day it's a comedy got the name cast and all of that so seem must have been a popular movie right i think so i mean at least in in european circles it seems to have done well i don't know if it initially ever got a u.s release uh, when it was I, I know there is an English dub of it because I told a friend and he said like, oh, is the rare English dub on the iTunes version? No, it's just French. So yeah. it, it, it was dubbed, uh, uh, but who, who, know, who knew and knows how much that traveled in the end. Um, but when it was released, it was like the 10th most popular film of that year. Um, this according to some Wikipedia data I pulled out. Uh, other films that did slightly better... Uh, that year in France include a film called The Sucker, which I'm not familiar with, but also two James Bond films, uh, Goldfinger and Thunderball, uh, and Mary Poppins from Disney. So I guess, you know, if you're in the top 10, that's still uh, a pretty good result overall. And uh, it certainly didn't seem to hurt Belmondo's career, who went on to do, again, a lot more work in uh, years that followed. I'd be curious to see... um movies like 20 years after this one because I'm, I'm thinking maybe he's a bit more stuck in comedy at this time give it five ten years or maybe even 20 years and he would be given more grittier roles i could totally see him playing a, a you know playing a lead in a thriller and not knowing anything about french cinema do let us know maybe he did alternate between mm. comedy and drama and thriller and what have you but the i think he's got the face for it he's not uh, a goof necessarily the story itself was also remade, and this is something that perhaps is a bit more in your wheelhouse, Ken, uh, as a China-Germany co-production called The right. Tribulations of a Chinese Gentleman. This is a 1987 film that hmm. looks to be, its again, it's a co-production, but it looks to be primarily done with uh, a Chinese cast and crew, and it looks like there's a German actor in there. The thing that caught my eye is that it stars Chinese-American actress Rosalind Chow, um, who fans of Star Trek will remember she had a pretty big role in uh, Deep Space Nine later in her career, and she's done um, you know countless other supporting roles over the years. And I tried to look for this thing and could not find it. Uh, IMDb has a picture of what looks like a Chinese DVD version, but I've not been able to track it down anywhere yet. Wow. Um, the German title, and this is where your German might come in, uh, Ein Chinese Sucht Seinen Morder? Well, something one Chinese. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's what I remember. Oh, dude, I don't, I, I, I'm, I don't speak it. I only took it. Right, right I hear you. I um, wish I knew German because there, there's a lot of, like, there's this treasure trove of, like, uh, German-dubbed only martial arts movies that are, uh, that you can't get in any shape or form and mm. the dubs sometimes are very good so I wish I knew German I wish I knew French as well because on the same note there's like uh, martial arts movies that are only dubbed in French that are actually good but uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm just waiting for the Matrix solution so, you know <laughs> yeah. whoa download it I now know, I know French <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's it for my notes. If you've uh, managed to see uh, Tribulations of a Chinese Gentleman, the 1987 film, and you have some thoughts on how that compares, uh, please do drop us a line and let us know. In terms of this film, though, availability, it's highly available on a variety of platforms. Uh, as of this recording, iTunes has it as a list price, a slightly expensive list price, of uh, 14.99. Since I watched it first about a year and a half ago, I haven't seen it go on sale um, since right. then. 
Um, Amazon, slightly cheaper for $12.99. Both of these, I believe, are the remastered version under what is called the Cohen label. And uh, so it looks good. It looks like they've done a decent job um, restoring it in terms of, you know, color and removing artifacts and things like that. You can also, if you have an Amazon account that allows you to sign up for channels, you can watch this on the Cohen Media channel. Um, by signing up, you can get a free seven-day trial, and it's listed under there. So if you want to go into seeing this um, under a free trial period, you know, that's pretty easy to do. Um, I don't know, can you have more experience with Amazon outside of the United States? Do you get access to channels in your neck of the woods? No, or no? That's, uh, that's news to me. It sounds mightily complicated, but maybe very constructive, like themed channels and yeah. like you can pick, you can pick your subscription based this on is, what you want to see kind of thing this is a point of contention between me and some of my friends and my dad and amazon uh, <laughs> and <my> because <laughs> yeah because we're all heavy amazon users we all have prime subscriptions right and you know that back in the day <laughs> you know this is sort of dating back myself day, to, to like what five you, years ago uh, you know when you had a prime subscription you were able to stream you know a variety of titles for free for well not for free but under your prime subscription and mm. then amazon started branching out with these channels they had an anime channel called anime strike and so if you wanted to sign up for that it was like you know 4.99 a month but you they'd give you a free trial of a on week top so, of your, uh, on, on top the, of your yes, regular this is, prime this is on top of you so you have to have prime first uh. and then you and so they've got all these different groupings of channels and this is something that Amazon's been experimenting with. And for people who pay for Prime, we're kind of like, you know, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot here because we don't want to pay more for it. And you're taking content that you're supposed to be offering for people who already pay for Prime and, you know, sort of subcategorizing it and, and removing it. And so it makes Prime less attractive hmm. rather than more. And it seems like they're experimenting with it because they had... Like I said, they had this channel called Anime Strike, which it seemed like they were putting all their anime under to try and compete with Crunchyroll. And there were a couple titles, and I went in, I subscribed for the free trial, and then I bailed at the end of it. I just watched everything in a marathon a couple days that I wanted to, and then I jumped out. And it seems like they took that channel away. So channels seem to come and go, and you know who knows what kind of contract negotiations they're doing, and... It's, I guess it's a strategy that they've had, but it, again, if you're an existing Prime member, it's like a head-scratcher because it's making your existing Prime membership just seem less appealing, especially for somebody who doesn't have Prime. So if you come in and you say, hey, I want to watch this anime series, oh, it's not on Prime, or you want to watch this movie, it's not on Prime, I have to sign up for Prime, and I have to sign up for this channel. You know, it makes you want to. Yeah, say I, no. I mean, the, the idea is obviously to expand and have a great catalog, but no, you know, that's you you can't weigh those against each other and have an easy sort of determination process from the viewer. Of course, five ninety nine extra per month because because I, I got the plus uh, plus selection, right? Know, Amazon Prime Plus or whatever. Uh, I, I want to say, by the way, I made an observation on when browsing iTunes. So this one, uh, you know, when you browse like uh, I'm a movie spy, the director and star, the the man from that man from Rio is there too. But they use this one and that one. They use 
the exact same poster artwork with only with only the text substituted. Hmm. So before you like click buy, make sure you pick the one you really want. Uh, I'm sure you're getting a good movie too, you know, the James Bond spoof. But if you really want uh, up to his ears, make make sure you get the right one because they did a strangely lazy thing there by having the same poster art, and I'm definitely sure that wasn't the case in real life because that. Oh would no, be... yeah, you can you can see the um, poster for. Uh, the the that man from Rio up on I think it's over on IMDb and it's a very different poster. Yeah, so, so. Uh, j- just keep an eye out and and indeed it looks good. It, it, it my, the the only drawback is that uh, I I don't know if you've noticed this, but um, remastering people type of people that remaster things they tend to favor yellow and green when they go 2k and 4k mm. and unfortunately this is a little bit like that. But you won't notice it as such. But I I have to tell you I saw. Like the re-release trailer for 2001, they're bringing that out. If it's uh, the Christopher Nolan-headed remastering, and you know 2001, it's supposed to be white in those uh, halls in that space shuttle. In that trailer, it was, it was almost pure green. Mm. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, I'm I'm not necessarily married to color tones in movies. You know, if a Hong Kong movie was super blue on VHS and it's only slightly blue on DVD, fine. But to take such a immaculate designed movie like 2001, it's supposed to be stark white as, you know, he walks through the tunnel, uh, you know, in his spacesuit. But to have it green tinted just because it's sort of the hip color tone of 2018 of a current uh, decade is a big mm-mm. But um, I had no prior reference for, for this one. It looked uh, mostly natural, but, uh, but I, I did make that note, uh, that little note that mm, it's spreading. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of akin to, who was it, Ted Turner or uh, the Turner Network who was doing the colorization of movies, um, I want to say back in the 80s or 90s that was very controversial. People would come out and like, you know, they're like, why? Well, I, I like the color. And other people say, no, you're messing with the original. Don't do that. So, uh, yeah, I get it. I'm more of a, I, I, I'm more in the camp of don't mess with it. You know, just leave, leave it alone. And especially for, you know, people like George Lucas, don't mess with it. <laughs> don't and go into to make effects, it modern you know? looking. And even filmmakers have gone through their own movie and updated it to be more contemporary looking and I've, I've heard uh, criticism like uh, lobbed at people like Michael Mann for changing the color tone and things of uh, and things like that of heat to make it look more like a 2018 movie and yeah, you people don't, you don't, don't need to do that exactly like a key, keep it era specific and uh, if you want your co- if you want a particular color tone and I'll get off my soapbox soon but if you want a particular color tone do that for your current creativity and not for your old creativity. Because um, I, I just pray to God that 2001 doesn't come out re-released looking green because it shouldn't. Uh, but uh, thankfully, there's older options that they're not going to wipe off the um, off the books. I mean, what are your thoughts on like a film like Metropolis, where they, you know, they not only add color tone to it, but they throw in a soundtrack and and that kind of thing. Well. I, I don't have much experience with uh, what they've added to Metropolis over the years. I know they found footage over the years and added that. That that was seemingly supposed to be there, but was lost for a while. And then, you know, they, they put bits into it. But with silent movies, I've never really thought that having... You, you're talking more about adding orchestral scores yeah. to... Uh, right. 
never really had a problem for that because it see with that because it seemed fitting as long as you here's the kicker as long as you provide the option right right okay i have the old dracula dvd the bella lugosi dracula dvd that has an option old completely music less version and then the rescore that adds uh, atmospheric uh, score for to add excitement and tension and it works rather well actually so it's all about how you execute it but if you're just doing it because it's hip isn't it green and do a new hip score like bringing some dubstep into michael mann's heat that works right with the kids doesn't so may, may, make logical decisions that, that that's my opinion but uh, you know you can be a purist and uh, please new audiences too as long as you give them options and uh, have old options exist as well in the case of our french movie at hand here it looks great but i i did notice that mm. a little bit a little bit too green like i would have loved a little bit more um yellow and sunny Hong Kong rather than a green Hong Kong in this case, but there you are. There you are. Off my soapbox. Okay. And uh, I guess just to wrap up availability, if you are platform or digital media averse in terms of streaming, you do have uh, Blu-ray and DVD options for this film, the remastered version, and both seem to fall in the 25 to $30 range. I think that um, one of them is a compilation of two films um yeah i don't think it might be the man uh, that man from rio that it's uh, combined with but uh either or the availability seems to be uh, readily available even though it's a bit on the pricey side so you can uh, choose your poison in terms of which format you would like to use mm-hmm. all right i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode uh, if you do you have any final closing thoughts sir uh, no, no. Other than um, I, I, I did want to ask you, like, uh, because we're fellow podcasters, uh, we do niche con- niche content on e- our each uh, respective shows. For instance, I talk about Hong Kong cinema, new and old, and Taiwan and Japan and all of that. But uh, you know, how has it been crafting this series? Like, because you found like new ideas to pursue rather than the uh, old but excellent east screen west screen format so, so how, how's it been uh, mapping out the series uh, so far has it been fun for you oh yeah absolutely i mean it's been definitely educational i mean revisiting things that i've seen multiple times over the years uh stuff that like we've covered like taipan and chinese box uh but also digging up new stuff like this and uh our next film and, and some of the films we're going to be talking a little bit later as we close this season out um, have been completely new for me. And, uh, you know, so it's been a road of revisitation and also a road of discovery. Well, I encourage that to um, to pursue such ideas. And uh, you did. And you uh, uh, you made yourself a little map of uh, where to go and uh, you're doing it. So uh, that's, uh, that's always encouraging to see. So I like that. And uh, that's why I'm also appreciative uh, of uh, the fact that you've introduced me to... Um, uh, yeah, has it been all new experiences? Oh, except for the Chinese box. But that that, that was a long... I, I had not seen that in like 10, 15 years. So it was essentially new. But how I see it was all going in fairly, uh, fairly new uh, with zero context. And I, that is always fun and uh, challenging in its own right. So all good. It's a, it's a positive effect on, at, at the very least, two, two persons. And it's great to have you here to bounce off of, as always. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more.
right, you have been listening to the Hollywood on Hong Kong sub-series of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but a lot of places like lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database are big helps. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us at our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. I did not do my due diligence on this episode, uh, which is totally my fault. If you are new to listening to us, I hope you've at least gone back and listened to uh, some of the older shows in this series. Just in case, let me give the floor to Mr. Kenny B. And tell us a little bit about the work that you do, sir. Well, over at the Podcast on Fire network and the main hub, the main site is podcastonfire.com. I co-host and co-produce a variety of different shows, main one being Podcast on Fire, which is our Hong Kong cinema flagship show, talking Hong Kong cinema new and old. And uh, we also do shows on Japanese cinema and Korean cinema and adult theme cinema, among other things. And uh, fun stuff from Taiwan that's neither artful arty or necessarily dramatic but uh weird crazy and uh goofy and that's the sort of on the fringe stuff i'd like to turn to sometimes is present there as well so uh, we're available uh, everywhere where you can get podcasts whether uh, regular podcatchers or the app the old apple podca- apple podcasts itunes and stitcher radio so i hope we have a show or two over there that uh, suit your tastes so thanks for uh, considering us and if you do listen thank you very much for for doing so all right excellent yes please do check them out um, at the time of this recording they've got some great shows out there most recently comes to mind of course uh, my frequent co-host kevin ma who joins me for our Regular episodes of East Green, West Green was a guest over on uh, Podcast on Fire to talk about uh, Anna and the King and uh, the Stephen Chow comedy uh, da, 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 on For, Forbidden City Cop. Forbidden City Cop. I always get that confused with on the, the Louis Koo one on His Majesty's uh, Secret Service. Uh, um, you, it's your lifelong dream creeping creeping in there like what if we did a Lewis Koo podcast <laughs> well we already sort of do a Lewis Koo podcast yeah. damn it Lewis Koo is in everything these days um, but yeah that's an excellent episode um, revisiting a couple of uh, you know a classic sort of Hong Kong film and Hollywood film uh, all in one so please do check mm-hmm. that out uh, this week I think at the time of recording you guys have just released or are releasing a podcast on uh, burning, burning paradise. Burning Ring paradise. Movie. Yes. Ring, we Ring we do a show called the Director Series that features uh, as many movies as we can cover from a particular director, and you know we focus on the entire filmography. And uh, within the Ringo Lam body of work, we've reached his uh, uh, dark swordplay movie that someone said on the forum or forum. I'm dating myself. Jesus Christ. On Facebook groups, kids said that it's essentially Fong Saiyuk and the Temple of Doom, mm. and that I think sums it up wonderfully well. I thought like, damn that was clever i wish i'd said that but uh kudos to whoever did say that because it sums up the movie quite well actually you're dating yourself if you say facebook too because uh you know the, the kids today are all the uh what is it the instagram and the snapchat and the things we haven't even heard of so vine no that's also <laughs> old. <laughs> i just got that to this this fancy new app vine no one's on it i might be the first yeah. 
So yeah, please do check out all of the great work that they do over there at the Podcast on Fire Network. Our next show is going to be the 1966 espionage comedy, so we're moving ahead by one year. Five Golden Dragons. Um, So we'll be looking forward to talk about that in the future. So all of that and more. Until then, this has been Hollywood on Hong Kong, a sub-series of the East Green West Green podcast saying, never take a hit out on yourself, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye.